The Legally Brief podcast is produced by the law offices of Judy Saunders. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's edition of the Legally Brief podcast. I am so excited that today we have Rob Stoker, who is here with us. We're going to have a great conversation. We're going to talk about his new book. We're going to talk about his life. We're going to talk about some of the ups and downs, challenges, being what I consider to be a disruptor, impacting the lives of women and girls and sports, all of the things that we here at the Legally Brief podcast are interested in. I'd like to start with a little bit of an icebreaker, a little bit different from the normal tell me about yourself. So why don't I start with Rob? Let's go to if I could take you back to when you were maybe five or six years old, or even the earliest memory, what did you want to be when you grew up? That, that time old question, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, no ifs, ands, or buts about it until I was somewhere around 45. Um, I wanted to be a professional athlete. Okay. Sure. <laughs> I, I wanted to play against Michael Jordan and, you know, I, even every once in a while, I would do something on the court and be like, oh, I think, I, you know, I, I think I can. You think you could take them? <laughs> yeah. And then quickly I realized like, no, nah, you're, you're not, you're not even remotely close, but always, always kept in mind that as a dream of, you know, playing sports for a living someday. But unfortunately, um, I'm not even remotely <laughs> close to, you know, being that kind of athlete. All right. So then I always follow with the question, then how close, I guess you've already answered it. How come close did you come to that early childhood wish? Did you play even in college or high school? I played sports? one year of division three college basketball. And when I say played, I was on the JV team and barely played on the <laughs> JV team. If there was some garbage time and the first day my sophomore year, um, I came in a little, little out of shape after the summer and you know, did, doing the, the workout and went right to coach afterwards and said, this isn't for me. And he kind of said a nice way, good luck to you. It didn't affect him in the slightest bit. And that, you know, <laughs> it was a full realization that I wasn't, wasn't, wasn't that good. But I played a- my whole life, you know, after that uh, intramural wreck on the court, love playing with my girls. You know, it's a great, great sports are awesome. Yeah. And that's a lot. That's how it happens. huh? We have that early aspirations, even aspirations in high school and college. So then now we're here and we're talking about your book. It's a no brainer. So can you tell us even from the point from reading that book, introduce us a little bit to your early family unit? I understand. I know from reading it that you had siblings. Can you talk a little bit about your early childhood and about the siblings you had? Yeah, sure. I, you know, that, that was uh, some of that, you know, was difficult to write for sure. Um, you know, a lot of the, you know, lacrosse headgear stuff, um, you know, what we had been putting together for years and, you know, websites and things like that. But um, when I was encouraged to get very personal, um, you know, my, my young childhood, I, I grew up with my three younger sisters and my parents divorced when I was, you know, they were separated when I was four turning five. Uh, but very different times back then. Um, they, they wouldn't be in the same room together, you know, let alone have any kind of conversation that's rounded on you know, around what the best thing for their children were. Some of that I just, you know, put on, it was just a different time. And sure, sure. Uh, you know, I love my dad, uh, but he was always working, you know, never home, you know, and uh, doing, doing his thing a little bit. And, you know, my mom was you know, doing what she was doing and you know, nothing great. And, 
um, you know, I have my older sisters and I always credit my older sisters, nine years older than I was. So things that happened when I was five and six and, you know, didn't even really know what was going on. She fully knew and took the brunt of it for, you know, me and my two other sisters uh, for sure. And so when I read that and I was gathering, it was so encouraging. It was, it was one of those moments when you read where you're holding your breath, but I see how the impact. And so you said you had three sisters. And so I, I felt it as a reader that you were explaining to us and setting us up for something else. So I enjoyed that. Right. And so you had, so we're going to, we're going to put that as a side as a footnote. So Rob has three sisters now he's growing up. It's, it's a bit tumultuous. Um, so then now take us now a little bit now going into your, um, so you, you have some type of schooling, some formal education after that phase in your life, you enter a career, what type of career or industry did you have after the formal education? Yeah, I started out in real estate. Um, I, I always thought that's what I wanted to do was, you know, be some somewhere involved in real estate and potentially, you know, uh, be a landlord. And uh, I, I thought that was the course that I would go down. And, um, you know, I was I was working in a real estate office and uh, I was 25 years old. And uh, that's when a friend from college uh, called me and you know, he, he had told me that months earlier, you got a call. Uh, from a childhood friend of his about being a day trader. And um, he, he went and started day trading with him. And so he basically called me and said, this is, you know, this is pretty cool technology that he has. And, you know, you need to move to New York City. And I, I was you know, born and raised in Philadelphia, loved Philadelphia, thought I'd spend my whole life in Philadelphia. But, um, you know, I heard that opportunity and the, t- the opportunity to work with friends and you know, to do something that was really cool. Um, you know, we, we, all of us will tell you, and we're still a very close group of friends, business partners. Um, you know, we learned a lot of, a lot of trust and a lot of hard lessons together and, um, got, got, you know, got, you know, got through it and we were the first ever day traders. And, um, wow. you know, that, that was a great experience for, for us and how I really, you know, put together, um, you know, business and, you know, so, so that's interesting. And again, I'm going to ask the listeners to make that footnote number two that will tie in because here we have now you have this an early childhood, you have the four sisters, then you're starting into a career. You're in, you said you're into real estate. You're you're one of the early pioneers or the early individuals in day trading. And then let's go a little bit now. At some point, then. And I know, of course, again, from reading the book that you meet your wife, Julie, you all start a family. Tell us about those early years with um, you, beca- you become a father. Talk a little bit about um, those early years as a new father. Tell us about how many children you have and their age range. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for for me, one of the questions that I always, especially from friends and people who you know read the book and hear that about childhood, my answer to, you know, how did you come out of that? So, well, to me is it's the the story of, um, you know, coming out of rough situations is it happens. It's you go one way or the other. And so from a young age, you know, I, I told myself, I, I, what's most important to me is that I hopefully grow up happy, healthy, meet, meet somebody that I get along with and, and like, and have a family with. And, 
Um, all I ever cared about was uh, that I wanted to be a good dad. I, I, and that's, that was really it. Just have kids and be a dad. And no matter what my kids were into and my wife was into support them in every way. And, uh, that was a focus from early childhood from seeing some, some bad things. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, you read some stories in the book that, mm -hmm. you know, just, just wasn't great. And every time I saw those things, I said, I'm, you know, I'm definitely going to be different. And okay. so, uh, 99, my oldest Sam was born. And, um, you know, it was about that time I was getting burned out from trading. And, and then September 11th, I, uh, right. Jenna was about six months old. So two young kids at home and, you know, I was getting burned out and I really, I, I hated getting on that train or ferry or bus or driving in to New York and trading was stressful. And I would come home at six, seven, eight o'clock at night and be exhausted. And, um, you know, I was, I was getting burned out already, but you know, that's mm -hmm. when, you know, September 11th came and that was a clear signal to me that it was time to, you know, be home and to you know, look to pursue other things. So a defining moment, 9-11, like so many others around the world and especially here on the East Coast in New York City and the surrounding area. So then you start the family and you have how you have a total of now four girls, correct? Four girls, yeah. Yep. Four girls. And so like so many other young parents, young families. Um, did you start then with the youth sports? Did you start on that track? We have so many listeners who themselves, you know, as your children start to get into the five, six, seven, eight range, they start, the whole world opens up for youth sports. Can you talk a little bit about your first interaction with youth sports? What kind of sports did the girls play? And um, did you become involved personally, say as a coach or any other capacity? Absolutely. Uh, you know, that was part of when I was young and um, I was playing sports and, you know, like, like I said, I, I wasn't very good, but I, you know, would look over and there would be other kids that would have their parents there and a lot of support. And uh, for the most part, I looked over and maybe I'd see one of my sisters there, or two of my sisters there, but now that was about it. I, it's the same thing as what went before when I was young, I would say, you know, when my kids are older. I hope they play sports because I love sports. Mm -hmm. But if they didn't do that, then, you know, whatever they're into. And so and some of my girls are in other things besides sports, whether they're doing a show or whatever. I love nothing more than sitting there and watching them or when they were younger, they did dance and going to recitals, just seeing them happy. But, you know, sports was always what I loved. And uh, from a young age, whether it was a Nerf ball and they were one or two years old, I would just throw it around the living room with them and you know, hit them in the face and say arms out and you know, start small. And then as they got older, you know, Sam started, uh, she played uh, soccer, basketball. I, I, I always coached basketball okay. uh, from when all four of my girls were playing when they were young um, and they played uh, you know, all the way up through eighth grade travel. And a couple of them played, and three of them played in high school, two still playing. Um, so I, I coached them up until eighth grade in basketball, coached some soccer. Um, in the spring, a couple of them played softball. My oldest uh, turned to field hockey and loved that. I didn't know anything about it, but I started watching YouTube videos and loved watching her play. So they always played sports. and So they, um, were, they were active. They were involved. So then I want to talk about a little bit of the defining moment that you discuss in the book. You are uh, one of the girls becomes interested in the sports lacrosse. You are walking onto the lacrosse field. You're excited. I believe that you mentioned maybe that another parent or someone with one of the youth organizations reach out and ask if you yourself want to participate in coaching. You walk onto the field 
at some point, you noticed the lacrosse field. Tell the listeners what it is you notice and some of the questions that you have. Yeah. So one of the things I always talk about is coaching my girls for all those years. And I coach them in rec. I coach them in travel, travel, obviously the better players, um, you know, who just love the game. And sometimes we're on the court six nights a week and I coach them third grade up and through eighth grade. And pretty much it was year round, uh, you know, mostly a winter sport, but I, I spent a lot you know, of time with these girls and, on the court. And, and, um, you know, I, I just love being around the game. And, and I say this all the time, the girls were all great. I, the parents were all great, great experience for me. So when my two youngest, I, I had heard that uh, some of the basketball players and soccer players were starting to play lacrosse in the spring. Uh, but my girls never said anything about it. So my two youngest came said, want to play lacrosse. I didn't know anything about the game. And I said, of course. And when I signed my girls up, the people who run the league, they get the list of the participants. And so my name, it's, you know, the small community and a lot of athletes. And so I got a call quickly asking if I wanted to coach. In fact, soon after I got a call from somebody asking me if I wanted to run the whole league. <laughs> and my answer was, I don't know anything about lacrosse. I, you know, they, but they just knew that, right. um, you know, I got along with the parents. I was good with the girls and, and the kids. And that's, you know, pretty much what it's all about. Kept everything positive and and moving, and they knew I would, you know, learn the game uh, relatively quickly, um, which I did. And and so I went to that field, and that's when I saw the boys on one side, big hard helmets, and girls on the other side wearing nothing, nothing on their heads. They just had goggles on, and um, it just instantly struck me as why is that? And I so I asked the coaches why that is, and just the matter of fact answer was the girls don't wear helmets the boys do they're different games and um i didn't like that answer and i still it's been six and a half years i still haven't heard an answer that makes any sense to me whatsoever so that's so just for the sake of listeners that maybe are not that familiar with the sport of lacrosse can you just give a very brief description of the equipment as it appears even a lot still today or as it appeared on that day when you first took the girls what do the boys wear what do the girls wear? What is the equipment that's used um, to play the sport? Just very briefly. Yeah, the boys wear big, hard helmets. They're, they're you know, what you can picture, it looks like a football. It's, you know, football helmets harder, okay. but it's still a big, hard helmet, hockey helmet. Uh, they're big, hard helmets. What U.S. Lacrosse and ASTM, which is an independent body that creates standard, U.S. Lacrosse and ASTM together made a standard, which basically called for soft headgear. Um, so you can squeeze it. So that, so there are plenty of soft headgear out there, but then the other part of the standard was it had to withstand stick impact, which is a very hard mm -hmm. stick to head impact and lacrosse is played with a rock hard ball. So that's what this headgear is alleviating pretty much just accidental ball and stick to the heads that, you know, as you read in my book, it just happens all the time. Just one single, mostly accidental ball to the head. Um, so, but the boys game is very physical. So the boys also wear pads. They wear big shoulder pads, arm pads. They wear big gloves on their hand and the girls only wear goggles. And the basic premise is that they're different games. The boys game is checking more physical and the girls game is supposed to be more free flowing, more open. Um, having said that, everybody who's been around the game for a long time will acknowledge that the girls game has changed as it is. These girls have changed. Mm -hmm. He said, growing up with my three sisters and even, you know, watching my girls play for the last 15 years, I have 
seen firsthand and can tell you firsthand that, the, the, you know, sports are getting faster. These girls are getting stronger. A uh, great way. I love that. They're more aggressive, right. more athletic. I, I love every part of that, uh, just especially in a, in a game played with above the head with a stick and you know, rock hard ball. Okay. Um, and Rob, sense. is the ball any different from the girls game versus the boys game? It's a little different, uh, different size, but it's the same rock hard. Uh, it's, it's a rock hard ball. If you felt it, you, it's harder than a baseball. You would say this is a hard ball. Okay. And so that's what we mostly hear is just warm ups, just a bad throw or ricochets off of somebody, hits somebody in the head, and uh, they're impacted for years and years and years, if not life. So you started to ask questions that first day that you saw the game being played. You, I was it fair to say that you saw some disparities. You see this ball coming at the heads of these girls. They're playing with a stick and you start to ask questions, but you're not getting any answers. Does that, is that what starts the birth of hummingbird sports? Absolutely. I, it, it, I was getting answers and I still get answers, but none of them make any sense to me. So that if, if I get an answer and it doesn't make sense to me, and this just struck something in me that, um, you know, I, I, I can't say exactly what it was. I try to lay it out in the book that uh, what it was that struck it in me, but it was. I, if I don't like those answers and we're talking about these girls and the science is there and the more I read and the more I saw uh, one of the first things was two major studies having girls lacrosse as the second highest concussion sport at the high school level to football. And um, the answer uh, that I, that I got, and the one that, you know, you read it in the book that I get most of the time is this fear that the girls game is going to turn into the boys game because we're putting headgear on their heads. It doesn't, no scientific basis to that whatsoever. It makes no sense. And yeah, to answer your question, it's very frustrating. Um, mm -hmm. And not only it's, it would appear to me, not only does that not make any sense, but it fails to do something very basic to protect the health and the lives of girls. And let me back up because I just started with saying the birth of hummingbird, sp hummingbird sports without introducing or saying in your being confronted with all of these questions, the fire now starting to burn inside. Um, you're feeling that spirit of, wait a minute, there's something going on here. Uh, do you start then this journey or quest to get an answer? And does that lead to what is hummingbird sport? Can you describe that for our listeners? What did that lead to? Uh, absolutely. So the, the first part of this was making this headgear. This is something that's never been done before. Like I said, you know, soft, you can, you can squeeze it. And uh, it was not easy. So as you read the, the struggle to make it, um, I thought, you know, give me a few months, you know, something soft, something to throw on their heads. They, I don't really care what it looks like. They don't care what it looks like. Uh, they just want to play, you know, throw it on their heads. We're good. That, that's not what this standard was. It was really difficult. So the whole time we were making the headgear and I was asking those questions that we talked about before, I was waiting to get a good answer. I was waiting to get some kind of good answer. And then I would have said, okay, that I, we got our answer. Let's stop what we're doing. And the opposite happened. Every, every answer I, I was getting that made no sense and still makes no sense um, just made me push that much harder to get this passed. And now it's pushing me that much harder to, you know, get it on all these girls' heads. I, okay. I, um, okay. So, so tell me this, you see 
you see something, a clear disparity between what's happening to girls on a sports field. You start then your journey, you start your quest to change that with what appears to be a very simple solution. Put helmets, put some type of protective gear on the heads of these young women. And you base that not only because there's an obvious disparity, but then it sounds like you did some research. You were just stating before that girls high school lacrosse um, has the second highest rate of concussions. I think culturally, we are more accepting and have more just general information as to the danger of concussion, both the acute, the immediate, and the long-term effects that concussions will have. So it would seem to me then, you would be received with open welcome arms by USA Lacrosse, the different authority figures, it would seem to be, oh, Rob, thank you. We've been waiting for someone just like you to come al come along. Is that what? Is that the reception? Is that the welcome that you got? Not even close. <laughs> Talk to not, us about not that. Not even close. <laughs> I, I, so I knew you were going to say that. Tell us about that. Tell us so about that's, that reception. That's U.S. Lacrosse. That's the governing body. Okay. Um, the response, uh, in my opinion, was horrendous. I laid that out in the book. The response is still horrendous. The discussion around headgear, protecting these girls. Uh, I, I use the word baffling in the book. Uh, it's, I have much stronger language than that, uh, for sure. Uh, but outside of U.S. lacrosse, the support, the emails, uh, doctors, coaches, girls who have suffered, their families, the support has been 100% unbelievable. Yeah. And that's what we focus on. That's what keeps us going. When you talk to these girls and you hear their stories and you talk to their families and you hear their stories and you know they're 12 year old, 13 year old, 14 year old, 15 year old girls who are amazing, uh, bright, talented, um, energetic, enthusiastic, ev everything great in a young girl. And I say that having four girls that um, you, know, you could want as a parent, as a family member and to watch them just a ball hit their head and for years after to say some of them, there's not a day that goes by, I don't get a migraine. Um, how that doesn't compel somebody to at least want to get the information out there, um, it, it's mind boggling. So everybody does that except for the most important people. And that starts with U.S. lacrosse, the governing body of lacrosse. And then so, from there, it trickles down. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Because you're you're touching on a very important point that a lot of our listeners um, struggle with. So some of the listeners there are either parents or they themselves are athletes in competitive sports at different levels, varying levels, be it in travel or be it in elite level. And so I, what you're saying really validates some of the struggles that they run up against when they themselves either are trying to seek protection for themselves or their children with these governing bodies. Can you give us some type of insight in your experience? Why do you think there is such pushback from national governing bodies? What was your experience? What do you why do you think they do that? So it starts with U.S. lacrosse. It's, it's, it is U.S. lacrosse. And uh, basically, my interpretation is, and everything that I have seen, emails that I've had with, and I, you know, name names in the book, uh, people at U.S. Lacrosse high up that 
um, I've communicated with and um, I talk about their communications to everybody, everybody who plays lacrosse, uh, they, you know, their members, uh, everybody who plays lacrosse around the country has to be a member of U.S. lacrosse. They send their blasts. That's what means something from everybody. This is the governing body of lacrosse who is sending this information. It must be accurate. It must be correct. Um, safety must be their uh, first line. And I can tell you it isn't. Uh, from my standpoint and where I stand with this headgear and girls lacrosse, um, and that's why I wrote the book is to put it all together. There's all the science. There are the arguments. These are the conversations that I've had with U.S. lacrosse. These are the things that they've done that I don't think are right for these reasons. And I'm not alone in that. I'm not. I'm alone in putting it all together in a book and putting it out there. Uh, but it is what it is. And um, from there, it, it trickles down to, for example, the NCAA uh, saying we're going to follow U.S. lacrosse's lead. And that trickles down to other organizations, the National High School Federation saying we will follow U.S. lacrosse's lead. If they mandate, we will mandate. That reminds me of basically what we're talking about, what we talk about so much on Legally Brief is a culture. And the culture appears to be set by these governing bodies, these institutions, um, and we, I could speculate, I can give you my own experience or my opinion as to why it's done. I, I think a lot of it, why they do not protect the children has to do with finances, has to do with the veering of various reasons. But um, it's interesting to see how your struggle to do something so, what seems to be so crystal clear to protect the heads um, of these young girls, protect their lives, protect um, their well-being would be met with this type of resistance. Can you tell us something else that I know that our listeners encounter a lot is retaliation? And I guess another term would be pushback. I know that um, you talk about in the book, one of the instances that you have where you were um, taking the helmet that you had now created through your company, Hummingboard Sports, one of the girls' helmets, and you're taking it to market. And it seems as if you and your team are trying to sell it or market it. And then is it a competitor or was it a the men's lacrosse, their top helmet maker? Did they rush another helmet to market? Was there some type of um, issue with that kind of that undermined what you were trying to do? Uh, it was U.S. So they, uh, our competitor, uh, who's Cascade, uh, makes boys' helmets. They uh, launched their headgear uh, somewhere around six six months. Uh, I'm sorry, six weeks, two months after we launched ours, and uh, they are strongly supported by U.S. Lacrosse, uh, mm-hmm. being a boys' helmet company. Uh, they obviously pay advertising dollars. Uh, they're in every room, you know, with U.S. Lacrosse sitting sitting up in the front. Those ASTM uh, meetings to create the standard uh, was at the front, uh, so ahead of U.S. Lacrosse and the head of Cascade, uh, talking about the standard, putting it in, uh, knowing it was coming, and mm. um, you know, we were we were in those rooms and made our headgear, and we were excited about it, and we're still excited about it, and uh, the that that was just one. Uh, you know, up one of the uphill battles that we faced here is having a competitor there and having them uh, supported uh, by U.S. lacrosse. Having said that, um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's common knowledge on everybody who has this headgear, has been around this headgear, that uh, the thought, the, the acknowledgement that U.S. lacrosse uh, is not getting the information out there the way they should. Not getting the information out there, which is, you know, which doesn't serve ultimately whom you're trying to help protect, doesn't serve and doesn't help the safety of the young ladies. Can you talk about, so that those were kind of some of the roadblocks I know, and there are other roadblocks that you mentioned in the book. I think you're talking, I, I remember you talking about, and I was cheering so on board. I think when you passed your first test, you took the um, prototype, some of one of the early prototypes, you took it, you had it tested, it passed the test. And it sounds like you were, it was pure elation, um, and then it was followed by, and it's important, I said, you know, because some of our listeners, they're athletes, so there's the highs and the lows. Can you tell us really briefly about that early victory followed by what would have appeared to have been a defeat? Yeah, so three years into the journey, almost three years that it took, we made so many partnerships. I have so many great friends who, from the time I told us about it, we're on board. Rob, I'm in. Anything I can do to help you. Uh, I'm in. And, and there was some strong passion and I felt it. And I felt very responsible for a lot of people putting a lot of hard work and effort into this. And one of the things that I talk about in the book, very fortunate that I made a great uh, partnership with Sean Springs, a former NFL player, just a, a great guy. He, if I can uh, show it real quick. Please do. His company, Winpack Technology, made the interior padding on our headgear um, inside here, which helped us pass that standard uh, to make something soft with their pads inside. Uh, Sean's story, his company, Winpact, is amazing. And, uh, you know, he's another one of those people that I, I could tell from the moment we met him and, uh, you know, we're talking to him about his passion and why he decided to make padding for headgear that it was just, mm. we were on the same page from minute one and, uh, he's just a great person and I've loved being his partner and we just have a great conversation. I think you, I don't know if you saw it in the book that I did a QR code interview yeah. with him and uh, he's just such a, such a great guy, humble. And he knows the effects of head injuries playing football for 13 years, especially in the nineties. And he played at Ohio state. Yeah. So I had so many partners, so many people, friends uh, who had a lot of invested in this and were angry and wanted to see me pass. And um, it, it was, it's difficult failing. It's really difficult, especially driving 12 hours, paying a lot of money. Uh, we put a lot of money into this, a lot of time, a lot of heart, a lot of effort, a lot of being on fields with girls. Um, you know, the, the you, you said elated and there was definitely an elation when we passed, but for me, and just, and just mentioned when you say passed, so you took the helmet, the early prototype, you took it, I think it was somewhere in New York where we upstate New York to have it tested and it passed that testing. Just wanted to explain that to the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So there was a cannon test, which is that 60 mile an hour rock hard ball shooting at very close range at the headgear. Okay. That was the most difficult uh, of the three tests there were, at least for us to pass. And I would think for you know anybody who was there, it's, like I said, that rock hard ball shooting it, you saw the impact at close range. We went to that lab with a soft headgear that we knew would pass the other two uh, tests with a little bit of work. So we went and did the Canon test and we passed the Canon test at a lab in New York. Uh, we, we were just so excited. It was, it was, and that was maybe six months after we started. 
um, just so excited that we did it and how do we do it? And it's unbelievable. And so we took another six months, nine months to finish all the straps and buckles and uh, put our uh, great name and logo on there and a lot of work behind it and took it to another lab. At that point, I had heard that the lab we went to in New York was having some issues with their testing equipment. So we drove out to Ohio. Uh, same thing. I, not that I thought it was going to just happen. I was obviously nervous, but uh, we failed miserably. And, and we deserved to fail miserably. Mm. And that was brutal to take. And it was a brutal ride home. And it was really brutal for me to have to tell a lot of people that I failed miserably. And you know what? So you had the the victory followed by uh, what would have seemed to be a crushing defeat. And this is one of the reasons why I really want the listeners to get this book, because when you just said, not only did you feel like you were disappointing a lot of people, tell us, I, I thought that it was just rich when you talked about some of the people you were most um, afraid, most not wanting to disappoint were your girls your, themselves. Yeah, I mean, they were my two youngest girls for sure, yeah. but them I could deal with, uh, you know, they're, they're, them I can deal with. Right. Uh, they're, they're my kids and I take full ownership of everything they do, the good, the bad, the, you know, and I, I tell them like it is. And they understood that. They understood that I was looking out for their, uh, their, their interest, best. but there were other people. I was starting to meet girls who suff were suffered on the field and they wanted to see a solution in the game and they wanted to help with the solution. Uh, calling them and telling them that I had just failed miserably and I wouldn't have it any other way than to make all those calls, all those people who supported me from day one. And I had hundreds of people you know, who, who said, good luck to you and I'm with you and you're doing the right thing. And I know it's hard, you know, but, but good luck to you. And to tell all those people and those girls and their families and even doctors and scientists who mm. have written studies about how these girls' heads need to be protected we're looking at me to make the solution. And that's what I did. People ask me all the time about the, you know, the, the concussions and physics. And I don't know anything about that stuff. I just know that it, it's an issue and head injuries are a serious issue. And I made the headgear that fit that standard. That was my part here. Wow. And I know it's the right thing, but those doctors and scientists who were looking for me to finish it off, having to call them and so say, you were back motivated. to square one. Yeah. Th that was part of the motivation. To me, it was all the motivation, all telling the my kids that they would never play the game. I, not, you know, uh, uh, that would have been fine with me. And I, I would have always known I made the right decision. And I tried, you know, couldn't couldn't make headgear. But to tell those girls, those doctors, those scientists um, that not only did I fail, but I'm going to stop and not see this through to the end. There was no doing that whatsoever. No option. Well, spoiler alert. I know because that we have the helmet. So we know that 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 quote unquote defeat correction lesson was not the end of your story. So I want you as we start to wrap up, I want you to just take us through, you know, did what what took us to the end, the, the final kind of um, phases of getting the helmet that you took to market? How how was that part of the journey? And we know that that wasn't the end of the story with that one defeat. Yes, I, we had a, an amazing engineer uh, from from the time that we failed that test that we should have passed. Uh, the next day, we were on the phone uh, looking for somebody who could help us. And we had a name 
from before and just drove right up to New Hampshire, uh, all packed in a car and drove up and met with them and hired them on the spot. So, so that part of it, the, and he's amazing and still a big part of everything we're doing today. Uh, so th- that part of it, at that point, I was comfortable with, even for him though, he started to learn how difficult the standard was and making soft headgear that withstand those impacts. Um, but, you know, we're, we're, we're certainly not done here. We made a second model headgear. We made our first and took it to fields and we got some great feedback. And, but there was some things we never thought that our first one would be perfect and took us another two and a half years. We you know, made our second model with those goggles, integrated, adjustable. Um, we're making other products for these girls. Uh, so that's one thing for us is we've seen firsthand how the girls are underserved in other ways. And uh, we, we've just made that a part of our mission. I get calls all the time saying, can you make this for boys? And I say, I have no interest. I, you know, they're, they're looked out for enough. Uh, we, we make stuff for girls. Awesome. So that is a perfect way to end this. You are forging ahead. We need this. We need what you're doing, Rob. Um, I know the listeners, so many of my listeners have had similar stories, obstacles, challenges, pushed back by institutions and authority figures. And you have exceeded every expectation of a guest that we want on the podcast. Someone that is inspiring, motivates us to keep going and also is expanding our world, you know, causing us to learn. I knew a little bit about lacrosse through my boys playing in travel lacrosse, but you've expanded our understanding about um, USA lacrosse and our understanding about what is the progression of the sport women's lacrosse. So I have to tell you some of the things that I've learned, some of my takeaways from this book, and I'm holding it up and for, this is going to be both in audio and video, but I want everybody to see it's a no brainer uh, entrepreneurs battle to reduce concussions. That's, I think that's the operative word concussions in girls lacrosse. And, you know, from reading the book, both from reading the book and our conversation, I know that again, you remind me that challenge and obstacles early in life, Um, are not definitive and don't necessarily define where we're going to go, what our life work is. I want all of our listeners to know that. Um, I do think it's important. We talk a lot on the podcast, Rob, about culture, about grades and about the labels that you're given early in life. And that does not define. I think you've shown that through your book and through your work. It doesn't necessarily define where you're going to be most impactful you talked about being a day trader and now you're protecting women and girls from you know concussions you're protecting the health you're talking about you're making us aware of this outrageous disparity um, i also took from the book that just the simple act and practice of observing you walking onto that field asking a question hey why is this like this and not getting an answer led you to become a disruptor. And that's what so many of our listeners are. And they don't even know it. You know, sometimes I'll tell you, I can share that, you know, some, so many of the girls, so many of the athletes, so many of the survivors that I work with, they don't realize. And one of these days, I, you heard it first, Rob, I'm going to come up with another word besides survivors, because I think that a lot of the um, individuals that I represent through um, 
sex abuse, through physical, through psychological abuse. I don't like that word survivors. I think they're more than that. Maybe I'll work with you to come up with another word, but they're disruptors, you know, because they're standing up against these authority figures and institutions. And um, I, and one other thing that I think is important that you've taught me through the book and through our conversation is to, um, to really expect and prepare for ill treatment when you're going to disrupt a, a system that expect for retaliation. I see you nodding your head. Would, would you, <laughs> would you agree with that? Absolutely. I, I it's, uh, you know, so a couple of things uh, just real quick is um, one is I've been so fortunate to have such a great inner circle of friends, um, family, uh, such great support. And I bounce everything, you know, off of them and uh, the stories in the book a lot of my inner circle knew and they're the ones who encourage me to write about them because they know, um, you know, that it's compelling to the whole story of what I've been through, but I have so many other friends who kind of read it and say, I didn't, I didn't know this about you. And my answer is, how would you, I, you know, mm -hmm. we, you know, we're, it's, it's great. We, we talk and maybe we coach our kids together, whatever it is, but um, it, it, you know, it was important for me to get it out there, open up and, um, say this is what I've been through, and I, I one thing I knew from a young age is I had excuses. I, I, if I did bad, it would be you know, he's, you know that that's what it was, and and I just made it. Like I said, my mission to to do some good here, and that's obviously um, what I'm what I'm trying to do here. Achieved. I think you have achieved it. I I applaud you on your continued disruption. I want to see it. We're going to check back with you to see where things are. But before we leave, there's two things that I'm asking my listeners to do today. Two things. I'm asking them to spread the word on this episode. I'm asking them to share it with their friends and their families, anyone that they would think, and maybe I am going to start to um, replace the word survivor with disruptors. I'd like to spread it with any other disruptors we have out there in the world, in the culture. And then I want everyone to purchase this book. It's a no brainer. Can you tell all of the listeners, Rob, how they can buy this book and also how they can connect with you? Absolutely. So it's a no brainer, Rob Stoker. It's on Amazon. Uh, we, we kept the price to under $10, around $10, um, because we, we did this to get the information out there, uh, starting with my story. But then really, it is about the girls and the science. And uh, uh, there's a Brain Safety Alliance that was formed, www.brainsafetyalliance, a group of parents, doctors, all the science, their stories. Uh, anybody can email me, rob at hummingbirdsports.com. Uh, I, I, I will answer uh, as long as I see it. I answer emails all day long uh, with, with anything you have, any questions, any support you can give, reaching out. Um, and I just wanted to also say one thing you hit on is sometimes it seems a little uh, strange, uh, you know, six, six foot two bald guy, you know, talking about um, how we need to protect these girls. Um, and, uh, the, the answer is, is that if anybody who's six foot two and bald can do it, it's me. I, awesome. uh, my four girls are everything to me. And I obviously, um, want nothing but for them to grow up happy, healthy, feel empowered, make their own decisions, do the right thing. And so if there is such a thing as somebody who, you know, looks like me being able to, to scream about these things the way I, I am. Um, it's for them. It's for other girls I've met. Um, and, and I am very happy to stand in front of this as the voice for um, what's right happening here. 
And we welcome you. We welcome you all six foot two and bonus <laughs> of you. We, we welcome it. We need you. Rock, thank you so much for appearing with us today, for having this conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Go buy the book, everyone. Connect with Rob and get a helmet on your girls' heads if they're playing lacrosse. That's what we want. No concussions. We want long, healthy lives for all of our athletes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, okay. Jay. Really appreciate you having me on Absolutely. and all your, your shared passion. Appreciate awesome. it. It means a lot. Awesome. You take care. Talk all to right, you soon. You too. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Legally Brief podcast. Remember to join Judy and fellow listeners at the Legally Brief Facebook group. Contact Judy at Judy at JaySaundersLawFirm.com. Remember, there is no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way it treats its children.